You know, this is this is this has been a marathon. It has been a marathon. It has. Uh, We're at the end. I'm really afraid uh, somebody that is a new listener hates us now because uh, we didn't put a League of Their Own on the shelf. I think we'll be okay. That's a new. I thing think to we'll worry survive. About. It's a very good movie. I, I think like we earned it. a lot of uh, good uh, points with her with the uh, the Captain Marvel. That's true. Yeah. So I think we'll. Be oh, okay. did she listen to that one? Yeah. Uh, she okay. really. I think she listened to it a couple times. Well, okay. So, okay. Yeah. Well, at least we know people who make good podcasts. Yes. If we can't do it ourselves. Yeah. Uh, I like this marathon, though. It's been fun. It's uh, been very interesting to watch the arc of the, this career. Yeah. Uh, I think it, it. we're rounding out at a very cool place, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, hello and welcome again to the Good Trash Honor Cast. We all gather around the table. We discuss the films you'll never discuss in Film Stays Course. This week's film, in our I Dream of Gina Marathon, the last film entry of this marathon, is The Long Kiss Goodnight, or is it just the long... You no, got it. All right, long. You got long it right kiss. the first time. It's a definite article, right? There yeah. is a definite. So it's the long kiss goodnight, not to be confused with the long goodbye, or the last goodbye, or um, any number of other films of similar titles and ilks. The Elliot Gould joke does manage to make its way into the film, which is very fun. But uh, we're here to talk about that movie uh, with you all. Now, in case you're tuning in for the... Oh, wait. I'm still Dustin. You are? I am. I'm still Arthur. Uh, I'm still Dalton. The studio's new, though. It, and, uh, I like the new digs. Yeah. I'm going to change it up every once in a while. All my rhythms are off now. Yeah, no, I feel like uh, being back at a, a, a table with like mic arms and stuff is really bringing out our, our NBR dulcet tones. Uh, yeah, uh, this week on the Good Treasure yeah, Podcast, yeah, yeah. I uh, will be joined after the first commercial with... Uh, uh, our special guest uh, coming into the studio to talk uh, Rennie Harlan's The Long Kiss Goodnight. This hour of programming brought to you by the Carnegie Institute. Okay. Carnegie Institute. Car- they Car- say Carnegie and it drives me insane. Carnegie, yeah. I'm from Carnegie. It's not, not appropriate. That's yeah. the whole Prague, Prague, Oklahoma thing, right? Mm. Maybe we can be sure. We just messed all the words up. That town named itself after Andrew Carnegie on purpose. Or Miami. In order to get Carnegie's money to build a library. Did it work out? It did not. No. But the name stuck, which is very funny. It's the most Oklahoma thing I've ever heard about your hometown. Uh, yeah, you're about to tell people what they should expect if they've never been here before. I guess they should this know. This is a good time to talk about that. Um, there's going to be gunplay. Um <laughs> And then, um, you know, Pistols at Dawn is how we do this. No, what we do here at the show is it's an analysis show, not a review show, and that means we do spoilers. So if you are tuning in for the very first time and you have not seen The Long Kiss Goodbye, uh, we are good going night. to talk... Good night. Good night. Well, good, and good luck. And good, good, <laughs> good night and good luck. The Long Kiss. Good night, good night good and good luck. good luck. Chuck. I can't get another movie in there. And Damn. Larry. Damn. Oh, Joe. We got to get the full title, or it doesn't count. Versus Larry Flint. <laughs> the long kiss, good news, and uh, <clears throat> good newsies. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, amnesia spoilers. Ahoy! So Captain Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But uh, this is what it will look like in the uh, coming up moments for you, in case you do want to listen up until spoiler territory. Uh, we do a synopsis, spoiler free, eh, sort of, and then we do uh, our D- depending on how how much Arthur decided to write. Our vaguely. Uh, 
mildly, barely spoilerish type reviews, just like all reviews you might read in a newspaper or haha <laughs> on the internet if you're a real person. And then uh, we get into our uh, expanding a syllabus, which will involve uh, slightly greater spoilers. And then finally, we get down to business, which is analysis. And then all spoiler bets are off. That it, is, yeah, your it's like warning. the spice meter at a Thai restaurant. Slowly but surely, we give you more spoilers. Exactly. And so we're getting there right now. So let's go ahead and hear that synopsis, Mr. Arthur Gordon, please, if you don't mind. Uh, I didn't have a chance to write one, so this one does come from IMDb. Uh, it's from Tony Fontana. Uh, Samantha Klein, suburban homemaker, is the ideal mom to her eight-year-old daughter, Caitlin. She lives in Honesdale, Pennsylvania, has a job teaching school, and makes the best Rice Krispies treats in town. But when she receives a bump on her head, she begins to remember small parts of her previous life as a lethal top-secret agent. And her old chums in the chapter are now out to kill her. So she enlists the help of a cheap detective named Mitch. As Samantha remembers more and more of her previous life, she becomes deadlier and more resourceful. Both Mitch and Charlie proceed to do the killing thing, the bleeding thing, and the shooting thing. That oh. felt like a riff at the end. Uh, was it? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, that yeah. was very good. Well, that was from the, the, the synopsis. Oh, whoa, it's but really it, yeah. in the they synopsis? They wrote yeah. those words. Son of a bitch, I just thought you were really on the money with no. your wrist this morning. No, that's, that's on it. evening. I don't know why I said morning. Now, before we get into reviews, guys, i got to point out something. So Mitch is played by Samuel L. Jackson, uh-huh. right? And uh, Gina Davis plays a character called Samantha. Yeah. Uh-huh. And sometimes called Sam. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so there is a character who's called Sam, and then there's an actor called Sam. And as I'm watching this movie with subtitles, I have trouble sometimes remembering who we're talking about at a given <laughs> moment. And uh, I just want to point out that there was a sort of uh, real world, uh, fictional world sort of overlap that was troubling hurt your me. brain a little bit. Hurt, hurt my brain just a hair. Yeah, that's fair. And we'll get so, there. Um, but I, I think I made. It. I think I understand what happens. You can't even get the title right, so I'm not expecting a lot from the rest of this movie uh, the, synopsis. The long kiss, good morrow, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, right, um, good morrow land. Yeah, yeah. The, the George Clooney, the lengthy smooch, hello, killers kiss gospel. Right, that's it. The long kiss, kiss, bang, bang. The long kiss. <laughs> oh, we'll talk about some connections to that here in a moment, oh, I think. Oh, my. Well, hey, let's talk about whether or not we like this thing or not. What do you say, Dalton? Do you like the long kiss goodbye? Good night. Good night. Uh, man, this is, I don't know, at least a quarter up to half of a great movie. Um, I, I think the general like narrative thrust of this is really exciting. Um it's it's Gina Davis doing Thelma and Louise in reverse, right? I mean, that's kind of the the elevator pitch. Instead of watching her go from uh, Susie Homemaker to badass, you watch her go from Susie Homemaker to badass, but the badass was who she actually was, right? I mean, it, it's playing a lot of those same notes, uh, just at a, a very different key. Uh, but then it just turns into a 90s action movie, and uh, it's fine. I mean, Rennie Harlan does an okay job with the action. I'm not going to... Sell them short. I think that final set piece is pretty cool. Um, and honestly, it sounds like the changes that were made to some of Shane Black's earlier drafts probably work out for the better. Um, but that said, I, I don't know, man. I just wonder what this film looks like with a different team bringing it to screen. I wonder what this movie looks like directed by Shane Black. Uh, I wonder what this movie looks like directed by Penny Marshall. I mean, I wonder what this movie looks like directed by Ridley Scott, other direct, directed by Cronenberg, for that matter. Like, any... Honestly, Cronenberg directing this would have kicked ass. I'm Holy all shit. for that. I mean, he did it later with Eastern Promise or um, 
history of violence, right? right. I mean, yeah. And, I mean, Eastern Promises, I think, to an extent yeah. as well. But again, I, I say all that to say, like, I like the bones of this movie. Like, there's the plot is fine to a point. And I, a lot of that, I don't know if that's Shane's screenplay or that's the process of New Line Cinema, who had never done really big-budget movies up until uh, this year and the year prior. Uh, you know, they're trying to break into the big-budget movie business. It, it didn't work out for them very well. Um, not until they did those Lord of the Rings movies a little bit later. Uh, but I, I don't know. It just, a lot of the end of this movie feels studio noty to me. Um, without getting to spoilers, we go from a pretty unconventional place to an extremely conventional place by the end of this movie that it just, I don't know, makes it a little less, uh, dramatically interesting for me, but overall I do like, it. I mean, Gina Davis's performance here is great. Uh, it might be my favorite of the marathon, honestly, uh, just because she gets to play a lot of levels and. I don't know, uh, gets to do some things that in the 90s women were not doing on screen, which, uh, fun uh, little tidbit I picked up, I guess that was a big part of uh, Gina Davis and Rennie Harlan taking this project, was it was too advanced. Uh, Gina Davis already, and we talked about this at the beginning of the marathon with her media studies, um, what, what is it, a, Dustin, is it a... The Gina Davis Institute of Media Studies. Institute. There we go. I was trying to remember what the label they had put on what to call it but yeah the gene davis institute of media studies uh even at this point in her career she was thinking about how do i with my career try to advance women on screen which i think is pretty interesting uh that she was already thinking about it and uh it just worked out that uh her and Rennie harlan kind of shepherded this project i just i don't know there's a lot of like about it but there's uh, an equal amount that i'm like this is fine so i guess we'll uh we'll save my quibbles i guess till we get down to business later on in the show. I, I think it's just fun watching this movie, though, uh, from 2019. Uh, lines like the president saying, I'm sorry, I'm giving all your, your uh, CIA budget to health care. Like, whoa, whoa, what, whoa, what fucking Hollywood version of reality are we living yeah. in right now? Uh, that, that, that's uh, it's fun stuff in there, right? Alrighty, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say, Mr. Arthur Gordon? Do you like the long kiss um, somewhere? <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you uh, like long kisses? <laughs> walks on you the should beach, be ashamed of yourself. Um, the soundtrack is always Crimson and Clover. Hmm. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm in a lot of agreement. Dalton, this really feels like two movies. Uh, mm. One that's written by a. a pretty good writer in, in most cases good to great writer i'd say in a lot of instances but and, and then one from a okay at best director uh and, and to see that kind of amalgamation to dalton's point yeah i, I would have rather seen shane black just get you know full control of this because i think it's a much more cohesive film and that to me is the thing that really breaks down is that this film is tonally all over the place um, you know, in, in bits, there are great sequences uh, when she's trying to figure out her muscle memory stuff in the kitchen. And then, oh, that's a great scene. You know, chefs do that, and then she kills a guy with a pie. I mean, that's hilarious, and it works in that moment. And it's a very Shane Black touch. Too. Yeah, I that, love that. That, bit, that comedy yeah. and graphic violence. Yeah, yeah. And we see a lot of that. We see it in Iron Man three when uh, Tony Stark raids the mm -hmm. the compound towards the end of the a film. A ton of it in the nice guys. Yeah, and so that those kind of trademarks are really interesting and fun. But I don't think that. Harlan and the team can really put that together in a way that transfers or fluid throughout the rest of the film, because I'm never really sure if this is supposed to be that send up of those eighties movies where black really got his start in the action genre, or if this is supposed to be something a little more serious and, you know, where studio comes in, where director comes in and all those elements are at play. Uh, and so that's why we try to stick away from the auteur thing a lot here is this is one of those movies where I don't think you can really 
paint that picture to a full extent. I think some of yeah, you know, too many chefs in the kitchen. Yeah, I think some of Black stuff is there, but I think also some of Harlan stuff is there, and then the studio imprint as well. So well, it's I, hard to see. And then there's touches that feel very much like, oh, this is probably here because of Gina Davis, huh? Yeah, uh, I, I learned that she practiced holding her breath uh, at home in the bathtub with Rennie. Which yeah, is fun. So, uh, a, is it fun? A day or two ago, we'll talk about it. Uh, I, I posted an article on Twitter uh, from uh, Priscilla Page, who did a write-up for Birth Movies Death a couple years ago about the Long Kiss Goodnight, and she kind of goes into some of that background stuff of the original script and what that looks like. And and for me, this movie on paper is fantastic, right? I mean, the pieces are all there; it just doesn't come together in a good way. But Gina's perform, I mean. Over the last three weeks, we've seen her do sports comedy. We've seen her do buddy comedy drama. Uh, we've seen her do uh, horror. And, and so she's so versatile and so flexible as an actress. And this is just another instance where she's getting to do something completely different. You know, even her housewife scenes, she's not being Thelma. She's doing something completely different. Here. Oh, for sure. And, and it's just a wonderful performance, the way she does both roles and the way she carries Slip, that. She slips in and out of them in a yeah. way that's super interesting. In moments, yeah, yeah. And the way her eyes change. And the way she, you know, there's the moment on the ice with her daughter where she's trying to teach her to skate and she just kind of gets really snappy with her. Yeah. You know, he's like, don't cry, you know. Yeah. And so I, I appreciate that performance a lot. And Sam Jackson's great. I mean, he's having a lot of fun here. He's a lot of fun. Um, he said so, this is one of his very favorite performances. Yeah, I've heard that, that he really digs to watch this one. And so that's, that's really cool because I think he's great. Um, then you just got a kind of a rounded out cast. I mean, we get uh, Brian Cox yeah. uh, in there a little for bit. a bit part. Which David is, Morse for a little bit. Yeah, so you got some of that stuff. But, I mean, it's really, really carried by those two performances from the leads. And they really lead to the film's best moments. There are a few times I chortled out loud at something that was either said by Jackson or something that Gina Davis did. Um, but the, you know, the, the parts don't outweigh the sum of the whole here. Uh, and it's pretty forgettable film, I think. So I'm, eh, it's, it's, uh, you know, as far as movies goes, it's probably the least favorite of the, the marathon that we've done. Hmm, okay. Dustin, had you, I know this was the first time for Arthur and it I, it was the first for me as well. Okay. And I'd only seen it in bits and pieces as a kid. So, uh, what'd you think going in? I think this movie is, and I think, Arthur, you were sort of alluding to the same idea. It's caught between decades in a strange way because it's not a full out, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like this, this sort of huge set piece version of '90s action yeah. cinema that we're used to. Nor is it this sort of over the top lunacy kind of violence, uh, kind of thing that you expect from '80s uh, action cinema. Nor is it this sort of uber gritty, u- uber realistic uh, Jason Bourne. I mean, this movie predicts. I, I know the books were already out when this film was released, but yeah, this movie predicts Bourne in some way stylistically, honestly. Absolutely, but it doesn't quite do it exactly at all very evenly. I mean, when the guy shows up and she, and she kills him with the pie, which is, re- I mean, honestly believable. You hit a guy in the head with a you know a ceramic pie a dish, cla- yeah. you die. Yeah, you smash somebody in the face with Pyrex. That's not going to Yeah, good. I mean, that's, that's something you don't survive. But also, shotguns do not shoot grenades. Um, that blow up. Oh, but he had an underslung launcher on it, which is an absurd place to put it. <laughs> it, it, it was no, absurd. they don't. And no, it doesn't. And then once that hole is made in particular wall, it happens to be exactly the same level as the treehouse outside up that landing of the stairs where you toss the daughter directly into treehouse to safety. And then let's talk about what grenades do. Um, not what they do they in that particular. They don't no. backdraft the hallway no. and blow no. you out the window. And also, you know, shooting out the ice to fall through. No, I really like that moment. <laughs> I, I mean, it's fun. It's but cool visual. It's it's one of the those moments though, and I think if that was like the only squirrely thing 
it would be more forgivable, but there's so much squirrely shit in this The movie. burning dude that falls from the helicopter who's still burning 25 <laughs> minutes later. Yeah. Hanging yeah. from the Christmas lights. I mean, no. And and so there are all of these little bits in there that are really kind of unbelievable that would work really well in an 80s, you know, again, sort of a Schwarzenegger commando kind of action movie. Um, yeah. But... Also, you have the very, very realistic stuff about the pie plate, but then it's combined with even just like little bits and pieces where Sam Jackson clobbers uh, what's his bucket over the head uh, with a tire iron. Dude dies. Yeah, that that's you die yeah. when that sort of thing happens, and he doesn't. Um, but to say you know he's always got a gun on him and he's planted, th- th- that's fun. That's fun scripting. That's yeah. fun scripting, and that's good set piece work for that particular drowning scene. So, but then also, why do the bad guys kill Brian Cox and not Sam Jackson? Exactly. Yeah, there's just weird choices like that. And and so there, there's all of these little bits and pieces that that work together to sort of work in a defi- definitive way of a particular decades. Um, you know, motifs and tropes. And the weird mix of this movie is it, it takes you out because it turns out we like schlock if it's going to be over the top. And, you know, Commando is just going to pick up, you know, a rail gun that would tear your arm off if you shot it with your hand, but he's going to do it anyway because that's what kind of movie we're in. I'm okay with that movie. Or that sort of super gritty kind of violence where Sam Jackson is covered in blood and terrible things have happened to him and he's able to keep on going. I- I'm-, I'm fine with that. Um, the sort of coldness that, that happens because of you being the uh, uh, former CIA operative and you're sort of cold to your daughter and you've got that distance, but then you all of a sudden you can turn the warmth back on. It, it, it it's a weird jumble. It doesn't quite know what it is. Um, and so that, to me, takes me out of the experience quite a bit, despite, you know, Sam being Sam and then not Sam and Gina being not Sam but also Sam. Um, You're going to be okay. I'm going to be all right. I'm going to get you out of this loop real uh, fast. <laughs> I think we're all in agreement. Yeah, there, there's just too many tones uh, yeah. going on. And for me, uh, it, it kind of squarely falls in the way this film navigates uh, who Charlie slash Sam is as a person. Uh, because I think that's a characters. Those are characters that are handled with a lot of uh, depth. And every time we get to like this deep exploration of character, then yeah, we've got one of these weird tonal things that kind of make us forget that there are characters in this movie. Well, I mean, uh, Sam Jackson's character himself. I mean, just to yeah. come right down to it, him being this sort of uh, cynical gumshoe. I'm all about this. I'm like, oh, give yeah. me Sam Jackson. Oh, a Mitch Sam is Spade. a fascinating yeah. character. I can see why it's one of Sam's favorite roles. And then let's put him in the uh, very very fuzzy green Kangol hat. I love it. Honestly. I mean, I, I love I, his costuming in this movie. I, I yeah. love that look, but that's a different character than the one we met. Well, because he's on, on the run. The... He stole the rich guy's clothes because he's on the run. But I, I agree. You know, it's, yeah. it, I mean, uh, the, I think Sam Jackson kills that character. I mean, crushes that role. But that's a different character than the character he was when he's um, um, what is setting up guys with prostitutes in Sex order to workers. <laughs> to. Uh, the, the hobo, not even a sex worker. Cop. I think she just uh, she's a fake. Yeah, she's yeah. a fake. Yeah, I think she's a secretary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah the, the cops that are barely yeah. uh, not puking. All of them ha- have played cops, which is fun. All all of the fake cops. So you know all of that stuff. I mean, that's that's a character as opposed to this other character who is. Why is he still there? I mean, I'm going to the house at some point if yeah. it's me. I, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, so. if the bad guys let me go once. I'm just going to go ahead. Yeah, and call I'm like, yeah, I, you, you've got this. Uh, I, I don't know. know. I, I would I think, quibble with that a little bit. I, well, I, don't I was going to say one of the things you know. I, I I think in Priscilla Page's article, she's a lot warmer on this film, and I think a lot of critics are. I know it's pretty well regarded in a lot of different lists and things of that nature. Um, but she mentions that they have this kind of shared bond of being two broken people. Well, and I think that's what keeps them together. That's what I was going to say. I think they're. Uh, it is their relationship to each other as both people who are parents. Um, I think is a lot of the strength in that relationship. And I, I think 
is a way to make a case for why Mitch, a char- that character Mitch, stays with Sam slash Charlie yeah. throughout all this chaos. So it was a very yin yang type dynamic in their yeah. relationship. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't uh, totally fall off the rails, but it's definitely yeah. careening in very, very jagged kinds of ways. Yeah. yeah. So I do agree it's kind of a stretch that he stays with her, but I think there are enough seeds to make it somewhat plausible. Yeah, that's fair enough. So, well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our initial thoughts regarding this particular film. Uh, we're going to move on now, and we're going to expand the syllabus. So you're teaching a class. Whatever the class may be is up to you, and whatever the particular section's topic may be is entirely up to you as well. But the long kiss goodnight is part of the assigned syllabus. Therefore, you must construct additional readings and or viewings uh, to uh, entice education out of your young students. Uh, what's the topic and how you doing it? I go to you first. Arthur, what do you say? Um, well, just for some bonus reading, I want to throw some kind of addendums in there to watch along with this if you have time. Uh, I think you go to uh, Peak Rennie Harlan and you watch Deep Blue Sea uh, and Mindhunters if you have some time. But Deep Blue Sea, I think, is really a mastery of that kind of cheesy B-movie uh, thing that he's trying to, I think, accomplish in a lot of ways here. Uh, and then from there, I think you go back and watch the movie we talked about last week, Thelma and Louise. Uh, that dynamic there is fascinating. And, and again, I, I think to Dalton's point, it pairs well with the, the role of performance that uh, um, Davis is putting on here as well. And then also, I would say, you know, this kind of postmodern action film in the 90s, you got to watch The Last Action Hero. I think that's that's the one. Okay, uh, yeah. It's really doing that deconstruction of the genre, especially in regards to uh, Schwarzenegger. Uh, but I think just the genre on the whole, and this type of Shane Black 80s diehard lethal weapon action film, it's right there with uh, The Last Action Hero. And they're contempor- contemporaneous with each other, right? I mean, Last Action Hero is what, 95? 94, 94, 95. Same year oh, Jurassic Same year Park. Jurassic Park, 93. Yeah. But still, I mean, yeah, still that decidedly mid-90s yeah. and kind still, of stuff I think, between decades. To your point, I think both of these are a little ahead of their time and what they're trying to accomplish. Um and then from there, you know, the, the big thing here is I, I found this uh, study today called uh, Hot Black Leather Whip, The De-Evolution of the Female Protagonist in Action Cinema. I love that title so much. Yeah, uh, from 1960 to 2014. And that hot black leather whip comes from uh, Catwoman, the Halle Berry Catwoman, um, which is kind of one of the points of the study. But it's looking at just how uh, the female action lead uh, started in the 60s as this type of hypersexualized lead, almost satirical to a point. And then in the 80s and 90s, there's a little more agency. They became, you know, actual career people, cops, lawyers, what have you. Um, and then kind of in the late, in the 90s and the 2000s, it became a combination of this hypersexualized version of that, plus this type of agency working girl type thing that they were doing in the 80s. Um and it's just a really in-depth, fascinating article. They looked at like almost 300 movies from the three decades. And, and they were looking at specifically at the movies that had women in leading roles in action cinema. So there's only 300 to choose from from four decades, five decades, whatever that looks like. Um, and so it's, it's a really interesting study. Uh, and along with that, some of the titles they pointed out is kind of being modern and not hypersexualized, like The Hunger Games or Twilight, where you don't have those elements at play quite as much. Uh, I, I think that's where this this course might go, and Long Kiss Goodnight could be a real jumping-off point for that 90s era. Uh, and then I'd probably kick in uh, Mad Max Fury Road to kind of look at that, nice because play. it's really, yeah. I think, an amalgamation of both, because Furiosa herself is very not sexualized at all, I don't think, in no, any way in that really. form, compared to the whatever the, the Valkyries, the wives. Yeah, the, uh, the wives. Morton Joe. And, and, so and even think, the way they're sexualized is 
different than Super what, complicated, yeah. Well, much different than what we have here in Long Kiss Goodnight. For or, sure. Or any of these other kind of 90s or 2000s action movies. Yeah, it's, it's a film with something on its mind. Uh, they're, they're really not even that sexualized. It just happens that they are wearing... Yeah. Uh, Courtesan clothes, yeah. Like the film kind of goes out point, of its way to not sexualize yeah. them, and really as best it can. Yeah, yeah. I'm, so. I'm very excited by by what you've said, Arthur, because it's teed me up quite nicely. So I think that's where I would go, and then Dalton would come in and substitute for a few weeks with his courses, his, there we his go. readings. Yeah, I'm right, ready. Let's, let's hear it, Dalton. Well, it's funny. I actually didn't put uh, Mad Max Fury Road on my syllabus, but I picked. I can't remember if I've mentioned this uh, series on the the show or not. I don't know. I've talked to you uh, about talked about it with you guys off air. Uh, but Innuendo Studios is this uh, YouTube channel uh, that mostly does uh, more politically focused uh, content. But uh, uh, they put out uh, six or seven part uh, docu-series uh, courting or uh, charting the course of the different tropes that women typically hold in action movies. Uh, so, you know, the wronged, the seemingly uh, innocent, the mother... Um, and just kind of charts these these different archetypes of women in action cinema and kind of talks about how Fury Road, it's all framed around Fury Road and how that that film tends to askew those tropes. And it, it firmly actually uses The Long Kiss Goodnight uh, as uh, an example of the mother in action cinema. And I, I honestly quibble with that a little bit because I think the ways Charlie is a mother versus the way Sam is a mother are contrasted enough that um, some of the points that film makes about using uh, making the the mother sexless in action cinema is a way to get around some of uh, the more leery tendencies of, tendencies of male action directors. Um, okay, I, I, I like the point, but anyway, I think it's a good primer for what we're going to talk about, which is I think action featuring women in the wake of the Long Kiss Goodnight, because again, Gina Davis took on this role. Uh, was pretty involved with Rennie Harlan in production with the end goal of advancing the roles of women in action cinema. So I say, all right, well, let's take a look at the last, you know, five, ten years or so and see how that has come to fruition. Uh, so the first thing we're going to key up is another um, actress as a producer. I can't remember if Gina Davis has a producer credit on this movie, but uh, from what I've heard about the production, it sounds like she was involved enough that she should have had one. Um, but to follow that through line, let's look at 2017's Atomic Blonde, starring and executive produced by Charlize Theron, uh, directed by David Leach, the uh, guy from John Wick that's not the one that stayed with the team. Uh, this film kind of gets at what we've been talking about, right? Uh, because that is a character, um, I can't remember her character's name, unfortunately, but the character Charlize Theron plays in that film is sexualized quite a bit, but it's done so in a way that makes me want to revisit the film because I'm interested and not because I want to see her sexualized again, but because I honestly can't remember how it plays in the film. And uh, I'd like to revisit it without before making a definitive statement on that. But I feel like the way it's handled is always in keeping with a way that makes sense for that character. But uh, to Dustin's point about, you know, brutal, realistic violence, uh, this movie navigates that line in a way that I think is interesting. I mean, it's a little over the top at times. She jumps out of a window using like a piece of, uh, rubber hose to you know as a makeshift bungee cord to get into a, a lower floor so there's some wacky stuff like that but the fights in this movie are bonkers uh really taking into account what does it look like when somebody who is outweighed by at least 30 to 50 pounds by everybody she's fighting like what does that look like and how does that person fight it's a film that's very conscious of uh, the fighting style that's necessary. And again, it's it's got the twists and turns and political espionage that it seems like Rennie Harlan wishes the, sh the script Shane Black gave him had. Um, it feels like that's what Rennie's interested in, and, and I don't think the script has that. 
Atari Blonde's got that. It doesn't make any sense, much like a James Bond plot, and I think that's kind of the point. Uh, next up, we got to take a look at, speaking of Lady Secret Agents, we got to look at Killing Eve. Uh, I haven't seen season two of this show, but uh, the first season's uh, written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge from Fleabag, and uh, she's also a robot in that Star Wars movie. Uh, but she was the showrunner and head writer uh, for the first season. I actually don't think she was the showrunner now that I say that, but she was the head writer of the first season of Killing Eve with Sandra Oh and... Ooh, I can't remember the name of the actress that plays Villanelle. That's all right. That's not why we're here. But you know Killing Eve. You've heard about it. It's on BBC America. And it is all about what we've been talking about. What happens uh, when we finally decide to make a series about uh, a secret agent and a serial killer where both of those people are serial killer who happens to be a political assassin. What happens when we take those characters and make them both women? It's a story we've seen a lot. But how does that dynamic change uh, when it's, you know, a woman uh, fighting against the hierarchy of, you know, an intelligence agency and also a woman fighting against the hierarchy of uh, off-the-books assassinations. Um, so I think that's a really interesting place to take us. Uh, and we are going to end with uh, 2018's Destroyer from Karen Kusama mm-hmm. starring Nicole Kidman, which, holy shit, is a good movie. Uh, it is a damn shame nobody saw this movie when it came out uh, because it's really good. Um, and I, I think is hopefully what maybe Gina Davis was wanting to get, the kind of films that she was hoping to see down the line when they made The Long Kiss Goodnight, because I think it takes a complicated, corrupt cop character and says, also, she happens to be a lady, and how does that change this character's life versus if they were a man, and how does this story play out differently? And uh, again, I I think um, that's another film featuring a kind of hard character to like, um, because Sam is likable enough but charlie is kind of a dick uh in ways that are fun and really interesting to watch but in ways that make you struggle with your allegiances to that character and i mm-hmm. think destroyer does that same thing with nicole kidman's character and really there's a lot of meat on its bones Ooh. um so again I, I would look at those three film or two films and a tv show from the last uh, really all within the last three years and say all right well now that uh, gina davis has uh dedicated herself to uh you know media studies um Hopefully, this is a course that says, all right, what what have we got? What have we got since 1996, this far out, you know, better part of two decades? What does the representation for women in action cinema look like? And as Arthur uh, pointed out, that article does not have shining projections for the rest, the back half of the 20 teens uh, when it comes out. But uh, since 2014, we've got a couple um, that are at the very least interesting, mm-hmm. um, if not solving all those problems, because there's... Uh, a ton of sex and killing Eve, for example. But again, I think having female cre- creators allows you to sexualize those female action heroes in a way that is a little bit more nuanced sometimes. So that's the course. Dustin, what do you got for the kids? So what I would do is what I would do was what you guys would do, honestly. I mean, just given just my my total whims and my total druthers, like I would go that route. You know, we'll, we'll let's approach this in terms of gender studies. But um, in order just to offer something else, just another possibility, because there are additional possibilities. And uh, one of the things that we need to know about movies in terms of analysis and in terms of research and uh, scholarship is that th- there's a number of choices that can be made in any given film. And uh, here I think I would do something more along the lines of industrial studies. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would recommend Jeff King's book, Indywood USA, where Hollywood meets independent cinema. And uh, it is, a uh, again, sort of an industrial history of uh, the sort of major miners and uh, some of those indie uh, studios who uh, eventually became sometimes independent arms of major studios. Yeah. 
and how those things came together with with particular emphasis on uh, what's going on with Bob Shea and all those guys at New Line. Um, in addition to that, I would add some watching, and I think I would just take clips from a long, long documentary because New Line Cinemas, as you know, is the house that Freddie built, and so Never Sleep Again. It's a good doc. Uh, it's a great documentary, it, it, even if you're not a fan of the franchise. Um, it's just fantastic uh, if you don't love Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, which I happen to love. But, but if you don't, I mean, I'll go to go ahead and make a harder sell because I, I like it okay. I don't love it as much as Dustin, but if you don't love it, listener, and you're thinking, oh, why the hell would I watch this? It's really good, and it's more about how does a studio keep a franchise alive than mm-hmm. it is anything. And I, I think it's a really interesting look at the the slasher franchises of the eighties, right? Uh, kind of written large through Freddy. And again, just sort of what are those sort of uh, you know front office kind of struggles that go on uh, with doing that? And because this film itself, a part of its uh, lack of box office success is sometimes blamed on studio and for intervention with the actual script itself, and also um, sort of miscued marketing. And I'm not sure. I mean, it's funny that I keep reading these statements that the marketing was sort of confused. I don't know what the market. They're not specific. In what yeah, they did know. or what they didn't do. I've seen that as well, though, that the, the films uh, was sold a little bit more funnier or more or even more of an action movie. Uh, but I, I saw that as well, Dustin, that uh, some people blame the marketing. For and I'm, but I, what I would want is specificity there. Right? Yeah, I would, too. Uh, I, I know, uh, as Arthur mentioned, that Priscilla Page article is really good talking about those changes from script to screen. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I want to know more about that. Post-production. Right. And so those kinds of questions and just sort of wrestling with this idea of what does it look like to make genre film? What does it look like to be an independent studio? And uh, how does an, indep- an independent studio doesn't want to stay independent? I mean, that's part of the goal, I think, it seems there. Um, yeah, man, why do you think A24 is signing this deal with Apple? Yeah, they want to make all the movies, and they want to make all the money. They want to crush it. They saw what happened to Annapurna. It only takes uh, – Annapurna's got more money than A24 does. It only takes a couple of flops to really be in hot water. Right. And so those kinds of decisions and just that sort of, uh, again, history, industrial history, I think would be very, very interesting. And so um, I would also just sort of suggest that as another additional a possible approach, although my preference personally and more, my more of my interest lies along the gender study stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah, well, and it's hard not to want to tackle it, right? Yeah. Because knowing Gina Davis's reasons for taking this role, knowing what she's done with her, her position and uh, her role in Hollywood you know, since her heyday, uh, it's hard not to want to go there, right? Yeah, and it's interesting because as I look at her research, her research does skew itself more to industrial sort of stats and demographics. And so I do think there's a way in which uh, she doesn't do a lot of analysis as to is this character you know, fundamentally good or not? Is this character fundamentally an accurate or an adequate depiction of an LGBTQ character or a disabled character or a female character or whatever, um, you know, um, gender binaries and, you know, sort of wrestling with all of those different kinds of questions. She, she, what they seem to be doing is just more of the maths of just counting numbers, which I think is interesting. And that is more of an industrial sort of decision because they're making the call. Do we cast Gina Davis as the lead in this film? Because there was discussion and Sylvester Stallone was banded about to be the character. Yeah, um, I saw. And, and so those, you know, to switch it over to being a man in a more traditional sort of male superhero kind of role. And uh, so I think looking at it in terms of what the industry is doing in making those gender choices might also align itself a little bit more with what Gina Davis is doing as well. Um, so well, there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got a bit longer. Let's get to that spicy analysis. It's business. It's business time. 
up to we're up to five peppers now. And so it's I brought the Zantac. We're okay. Yep. Uh, well, in that case, uh, Mitch doesn't die. He gets to go on Larry King, uh, which is a... And makes a terrible joke. Yeah, he makes a bad joke. <laughs> it's, it's a funny, funny joke. <laughs> it's a funny joke. I got to say. Uh, that's a good it's bit. pretty funny. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's got a super mega happy ending. So yeah. this they, is a, uh, they yeah. make off with their spy movie and buy a ranch or something. Yeah, it's kind of a retcon because in the original script, uh, the Mitch character actually does die. But test audiences were like, uh-uh. No, we can't kill so Sam Jackson. I, I, I think when we see him die on that bridge, that was probably the end of that character. Yeah. Uh, and then they do that retcon where he's in the car and nobody can kill me uh, thing. Uh, and that's an interest. I mean, it, it's a lot of that studio thing. Like Back to Dustin's point, though, of stepping in to have to audible to please the crowds yeah. rather than take away, you know. Which does take away somewhat from the artistic vision, I think, uh, when you have to cater to the crowd. But also... It's something we've kind of bucked back and forth around here, especially with the rise of the Netflix original productions, is, you know, when do you let the studio step in? Or, or rather, when is it good for... I mean, the studio can step in when they want, I guess, but unless you have a special deal. Well, and all of this that we're talking about is interesting because Shane Black himself felt like a sellout for making this movie. When he sold this script, it was the most money anybody had ever sold a screenplay for, and he immediately felt like a phony, apparently. Mm. It was like... Uh, he Nobody... I, I couldn't find any, like, actual... Uh, four million back and forth, dollars. Four million dollars. Uh, but he later admitted that uh, apparently a lot of uh, his fellow screenwriters uh, were decidedly envious, uh, and he uh, fielded a lot of accusations of being a you know being too commercial of selling out. Uh, this is the last movie he makes until Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which he wrote and directed himself on not a whole lot of money. Uh, and I think it's interesting that this screenplay. Um, seems to have a lot of those questions about you know authenticity um, and you know being your true self in the uh, the way that Charlie reckons with the woman she became when she lost her memories. Because uh, Charlie does not like Sam uh, mm-hmm. when Charlie first comes back, and I think that it's a really interesting knowing that that's how Shane Black felt about the script after it was sold. Uh, so I'm curious if those thoughts were clinking around in his brain before he even sold the screenplay. Just because there are so many questions about, like, how do you be authentic? When do you say, oh, it's all right if the studio wants to jump in and change? You know, I really, really wanted this on a bridge, but they wanted on, uh, you know, a frozen lake or whatever. Not a good example because there is a bridge in this movie. But, yeah. you know, I, does Shane Black's screenplay have a uh, – does, does Shane Black's screenplay predict 9-11? I don't know. Uh, but this movie kind of does. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's a disturbing kind of way. We'll, yeah. we'll get there. Yeah. But again, I, I just think it's interesting, as you said, Arthur. I mean, it's it's hard not to ask these questions about commerce when we're talking about an art form that is dominated by money. Um, and it's interesting. Shane Black kind of feels similarly and had to piece out for 10 years and figure out what kind of filmmaker he wanted to be. Yeah, I mean, I, t- I totally agree. And it, it, sometimes the studio intervention's good. I mean, that's the thing. Is like sometimes they, they knock one out. Sometimes you hear examples of things that get changed. You go, oh, that's probably yeah, like the cat dog from The Fly. Who? Yeah, oh, that was a good step. Sometimes in. you yeah. show it to a test audience and you go, yeah, okay, we should change yeah. that. Yeah, don't do that. And good call. And then sometimes you wind up with mute on Netflix. Well, and again, Ooh. oh boy. Uh, and I, I can't remember if uh, Priscilla Page's article touches on this, Arthur. I haven't read it in well since it was first published. Um, I know that the the Shane Blackstrap was like way darker. Yeah, so there's a lot of background there about more about Mitch and about uh, the Charlie character. Charlie, I think, was uh, raped. And I had a feeling when I heard that there was a darker screenplay. Was Charlie raped or was Mitch raped in prison? Both, I believe. Okay, the implication uh, is that that's part of their bonding is their Mm, trauma. Yeah, Yeah. and uh, also that 
Charlie watched her father die and her father died believing she was the reason he died. Mm-hmm. And so she also has that guilt as well. So yeah, there's a lot more I think of those character bits uh in there and I think that's, you know, part of the reason that that bond does exist. We just never get to see those pieces come to the surface. But look, honestly, in this movie with as much tone issues as the finished product yeah, has, it's them. definitely good we got rid of those assault subplots. Yeah, I've been mad about that. Yeah. So again, sometimes these interventions, sometimes you need somebody to be your friend to go, mm, I don't know if this is the movie to talk about that issue. Um, so yeah, sometimes it does work out. And I mean, the truth is, I mean, the, the old Louis B. Mayer quote, right, but from way back in the 1930s is nobody knows nothing. I mean, yeah. that, that, that's the thing. Screenwriters don't really know what works, and studio execs don't really know what works. As much as they want to convince you, they do. But they've all been working at it a long time, and, you know, their guesses are, you know, okay. And yeah. so, but sometimes they miss it, and sometimes they make it, and that's just the way it works. Well, now we've got the algorithm, and uh, how how close can the algorithm get? Can it get closer than the execs ever got? Maybe. Who mm, knows? I don't know. It also brings up, you know, to me, the idea of, you know, I, I mentioned that we kind of discount the auteur theory early on. But to me, it's always interesting, I think, when a writer has a stronger voice than a director. You know, in this instance. For sure. Yeah. You know, I think Shane Black has a very distinct style of screenwriting, and especially before he actually starts directing and making films himself. Uh, but a lot of those seeds are already planted early on, the, the Christmas thing or the uh, – Yeah, just was- that – can we do a 80s. countdown real quick of how many of his movies are Christmas movies? At least, what, five? Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Iron Man 3, this. The Long Kiss Goodnight, Lethal Weapon 1 or 2? One of them. One of at them. least I, one of them. I, think, I one. think maybe more. I think maybe two might be at Christmas yeah. as well, but at um, least the first one. I was trying to remember. I think the, if The Predator was set at Christmas, but I couldn't remember. I can't remember. Is, I mean, it wouldn't surprise is me. The Nice Guys? It's yes, in the summer. It it, this is The Nice Guys. Yeah, so that's, somebody, I, I was reading something about that, and they mentioned that. I couldn't remember. So, yeah, we're at five already. Yeah. So, and, yeah. And so, I mean, he's got a lot of those distinct things. I think a lot about Aaron Sorkin is another one who's very distinct in his style, and you know when you're seeing a a, a, uh, a Sorkin movie. And also, I mean, Tarantino's another guy when, you know, you think of something like uh, From Dust Till Dawn or uh, True Romance, where we've got those. Yeah, anything, he, the two that he didn't direct. Yeah. yeah. You still go, yep, oh, it just smells like Tarantino. Yeah. And so I'm always just, you know, fascinated. We like to... Uh, give a lot of props to the directors and that's always the default of tour, you know, but I think there are those screenwriters who have those marks as well. And, uh, it's, it's kind of a disservice to them to overlook their contributions in a lot of ways. I know, you know, writers tend to have multiple drafts and so one guy could pin it and then five other people could come in to overdo it. But I, I think if those markers are still there across a body of work, it's something worth, uh, looking at if, if nothing else. For sure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the gender politics then. Let's, oh, we want to okay. skip to that? I want to talk a little oh. bit more about uh, how you write mysteries. Okay, uh, go on. Just while we're still talking about form. Uh, Good just, old who done it? Who done it? Uh, which Shane Black is a fan of. Shane Black likes a lot of mysteries in his screenplays. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of talk about the art of writing mysteries in the Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, they talk about, uh, they, they lampshade the fact that almost all mystery plots have an A plot and a B plot that seem unrelated and end up being... Uh, the tie between the two ends up being the key that locks the uh, unlocks the whole thing, and both Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and the Nice Guys have that. This film doesn't really uh, quite as much as either of those, um, but it definitely has the, those mystery elements just by virtue of the uh, amnesia. amnesia. So plot, how, does, yeah. how does that work for you guys? Uh, the I mystery actually, here. I made a note about the amnesia plot because oh, okay. I think it works really well uh, from a suspense or thrilling aspect because when you're in the shoes of that. Per- protagonist in here you know sam slash charlie's you know at least sam's case we don't know who to trust and neither does she yeah and i think that helps keep you on the toes you know especially when she makes contact with brian cox there's a lot of uncertainty is his allegiances and and from that point on you're questioning anybody that she knows from their past uh until charlie shows back up 
Uh, and so I think it's a really well-utilized plot device here to help carry that suspense forward, at least for the first third of the film uh, until Charlie re- reappears. Uh, and so I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, I don't know that it always works quite as well, but here I think it's uh, a masterful way of coming into this, uh, this world that she's created or yeah. that he's created. I, I mean, I don't know because uh, some of the twists work like surprise more than they do like suspense. I think, I think really, really well-written mysteries have a lot more of, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, um, and that there's a sort of a natural, uh, connection between events but when she shows up at the ranch and uh you know cowboy handsome is there and she thinks maybe that's her ex-fiance and it turns out it's not it it, i mean yes there's the the note that's apparently in code but we didn't know there was code and i mean it just just sort of drops on you a little bit it made sense to me Uh, i mean as charlie points out she goes well he was a target i mean once charlie's back in charge after sam has left the building where the the two have merged however we'll we'll dissect that in a moment but yeah i I don't know. I think it works a little bit better for me than you. Also, as soon as I saw David Morse, I was like, oh, he's a bad guy. Yeah. I mean, that's just kind of his bread and butter. But, yeah, I, I, I'm just, uh, again, somebody who writes a lot of mysteries, probably thinks a lot about them. So watching a, um, a screenplay uh, from somebody known for mysteries play out uh, from a director who doesn't seem that interested in mysteries, uh, I don't know. I thought, it was, I thought it was a very interesting, as Arthur mentioned, like that merger of, of the blueprint and the finished project. So, um, we, yeah, let's get to gender politics. I just wanted to take a brief moment for mysteries. So there's a term that I can't say. Uh, oh, is it the, the fighting fuck toy? That's the one. Yeah, so in media studies, I didn't come up with that term. Uh, um, I'm actually, just the one that like addendum earlier, I thought he said dinner politics. Uh, so I was I thought this was going <laughs> a completely different direction. Hey, you don't talk about politics at dinner. That's what I've heard. Yeah, the, the turkey gets flipped. It's not good. I have heard tell of these things. Um, I don't know. I've never been to a Thanksgiving before. What would I know? Um, yeah. yeah, the FFT. <laughs> the what? The FFT. What's the FFT? You just said it. That word we don't say. Oh, yeah, the FFT, the word that you guys are uncomfortable saying because I'm the only one that says F-words on this show. So, yeah, it's, it actually comes up in uh, that article Arthur mentioned earlier. Um, and it is a famous film studies term. Yeah, who, who was the, the guy? Oh, it's we, his name's come in up the before. article, but I can't remember. Dustin, do you know it offhand? No. Ah, it's not important. Maybe uh, Arthur will get to it, but uh, we'll lay it out real quick. Basically, it's the idea that uh, uh, male directors and male screenwriters tend to make their female action heroines just be real, real sexy... Uh, uh, sexy action ladies. Uh, look no further than the works of James Cameron for uh, lots of good examples. I thought of that. a lot about True Lies. Yeah, I mean, you got your True Lies, you got your Vasquez's, you got your Ripley's, you got your. I mean, really. Uh, look, Jim. Jim likes a hot mom. I get it. Jim. Jim likes a, a ripped mom. Um, and not to sell his his film short, I think there are nuance in all of those characters, and I don't think. Um, the, the man who came up with this trope would say that none of these characters have nuance, but it is an underlying issue in uh, when these characters are handled by men. Uh, the term is quoted from an article uh, credited to a Heldman and Holmes from 2005. There you go. Um, and that's that was one reason I brought up Atomic Blonde, because I think you could level those charges at that film, um, yeah, even though Charlize Theron is... You know, involved at the executive producer level, probably had a lot of pull on what she did and didn't do with her body in that film. Um, and I think there's an empowered sexuality to that. But again, as you know, we're going to talk about empowered sexuality is often um, ooh, not, 
is sold in a very uh, packaged for dudes way. Well, yeah. the rails of the debate are this, right? So there's there's two sides. One side is that the hypersexualized woman is a woman who is uh, taking and uh, uh, formerly dispossessed sexuality and owning it herself and using it for her own purposes, and so that that is some sense liberatory to do that. And the other side of it is the argument that no, they simply are uh, being victims of the male gaze, uh, dressed up in an action movie sort of. Uh, uh, narrative, yeah. right? And it feels like a very, you know, from a, probably from a studio perspective and, and looking at that angle, it looks very much like a have your cake and eat it too type of thing. Like, For sure. look what we're doing. We've got this. Aren't we progressive? But yeah. also, those titties in this film. Yeah, exactly. Come on down to the picture show. Yeah. Come see Aeon Flux starring Charlize Theron. Oh, man. I got Also directed by Karen Kazama. I, need a, I don't mm. know if you guys actually read the well, article in full. No, I didn't get a chance um, to. Let me find this quote from it real fast because. Uh, I was really frustrated. Uh, they cite a film critic here. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see if I can find it. Um, do you want to say, do a little soft yeah, show? Yeah, you can. Yeah, go ahead and talk. Yeah, we'll do I'm a little soft show while you're talk. looking for it. I wasn't sure how quick you'd get it. Um, I I don't know. There's also this thing, in a, tangentially related, but I don't I haven't read that full article by Holmes. And um, what's his doodle? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's her doodle? What's their doodle? Uh, Pronouns are important. Heldman, yeah, I damn think. straight. Uh, Heldman and Holmes. I haven't read their article, but... They make wonderful mayonnaise. <laughs> Shut your mouth. Uh, th- there's often this thread of uh, defeminizing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a lot of movies, uh, Sam would be more overtly feminine than Charlie. Um, and I think it's an interesting choice here to make Charlie a lot more... Uh, to wear more makeup, to uh, actively have a hairstyle, uh, to dress a certain way. There, there is a hyper-femininity to Charlie that Sam lacks in a way that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ways in which Charlie is divorced from her sexuality, which she would often use, we get the impression that Charlie's not afraid to use sex based on what we know about her as a, an assassin. Um, but uh, she tries to use that, right? I want to be out of an uncomfortable situation. I can use sex. And she tries to sleep with Mitch. And uh, he desexualizes her because she's a, a wife and a mother now mm-hmm. in a way that I think is really interesting, right? Yeah. And I, I don't think it reads totally like co- problematic. I think it's complicated. Right. But I don't think it's on its face a bad depiction of either of those characters. Um, but again, I, I find that that putting on of makeup when she retains her assassin identity. Uh, I, I think the first thing we see her do being doing her hair and makeup is a really interesting choice. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I found this quote, and, and it's in regards to a movie called Mercenaries, which came out, I believe, 2014, and it was kind of like an all-female version of The Expendables. Okay. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's kind of in response to that idea. Um, and the author here quotes uh, one of uh, a film critic uh, who had reviewed... Uh, Mercenaries, which had starred uh, Kristana Loken, Cynthia Rothrock, Vivica Fox, Zoe Bell, and Bridget Nielsen. Bridget Nielsen. Give huh. me that movie. It's an interesting um, cast, yeah. But uh, So this, this film critic said, A quote kept entering my head when watching the movie. A line Steve Buscemi once uttered, Where could a guy find some action? Not that type of action. I'm talking about sex and nudity, particularly from the, he- uh, from the best looking of the bunch, uh, Christina Loken. Alas, there is none, which pretty much removes the reason why uh, any of us might remotely avoid changing the channel should it accidentally appear on TV some some night. Gross. Yikes. Yikes. That's Yikes, a, that's, indeed. That's a groaner right Wow, there. no wonder they cited that article. Yeah. Christ. Yeah. That's, a, that's the world of the internet. Cynthia Rothrock is a treasure. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's the... 
the reception, right, that any act, potential action heroine is walking into because it is a genre often uh, kept afloat by uh, dudes who want to see uh, gore because that's what they've been told their whole lives they want to see um, in a weird gatekeepy way that, uh, look, th- this is not the episode to talk about why uh, horror seems to appeal to women more than action movies. That's a conversation for another day with other guests. But, uh, yeah, th- that's the world that uh, any female-led action movie is going out into, a world where mm-hmm. people say shit like that. Um, and I don't know. I think, I think the film, although we definitely, I mean, again, as soon as Charlie is back in the building, one of the first things we see is, uh, some side nudity of her taking a shower. Right. So the film yeah. very definitively states Charlie fucks, Sam does not. Um, in a pretty like blatant way. There's not a whole lot of, not the, the chemistry between Gina Davis and I can't think of the character actor who plays her husband, but I've no, I've seen him before. She's ball boyfriend guy. They're very cute together, they right? But it's not a, it's not sexualized really in any fashion. Well, they, they, they flirt. They, they stick their fingers in their palms as often as they possibly can. Yeah, I mean, which is, which is good. That was a very cute joke. Uh, Gina Davis is so good in this movie. Uh, <laughs> she, she's so good. Uh, but again, I, I don't know. I, I guess I just want to present that and, uh, I'm not sure I have a thought on it yet. Does anybody else? I mean, it does seem that, again, the way in which we're going to believe in this character as this super hyper-violent is that she does need to sort of maintain a hyper-femininity that is only ex- exemplified in her sexuality. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, this movie could have gone a direction. Was Let's talk about gender roles and, and those kind of things that are sort of assigned by patriarchy. She could have really been hardcore into the chef thing. Like, you know, yeah. cooking and knife work and those kind of things could have been some of the keys in which the identity of that character could have been constructed. I mean, the script sort of leads us in that direction a little bit there early on in the film. But rather than choosing something that is a desexualized, or at least asexual, uh, in term, because, I mean, you know, cooking is with that. Well, well. Not the way I do it. <laughs> um, all sex starts in the kitchen. A lot of eggplants uh, at Dalton's home. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I don't fuck with eggplants. Uh, oh, my gosh. I know. I have a weird palate. <laughs> we're, we're not here to talk about what I do in the kitchen. Do you get my point? Yeah, I get your point. It's, yeah, it's asexual. Where is opposed uh, to assassin, which is kind of a inherently sexualized job, right? Right. And it doesn't have to be, though. I mean, it could have been that she did her job by, you know, getting in with the help or something like that. Or, as yeah, as by being a cook. Food service kind of things and just happened to be female while she did those sort of things. And so the, the script makes the choice and the tropes make the choice yep. that the way it is depicted is going to be within that sort of sexual framework. Yeah, it's... Uh... I don't know, I'm, I'm fascinated by it, I guess, because there was this big hoopla, and I feel like it's died down, but when Fury Road first came out, um, there, there was this big hoopla about how feminist can this action movie be, because it's all about um, taking the, the this masculine violence, and uh, the video essay uh, series that I mentioned earlier I think makes a very good case for uh, the ways in which that film depicts uh, women and their relationship to violence, and really all of our relationships to violence. Uh, but again, yeah, the, the pairing of, of sex and violence when Charlie fully comes back home into that brain is an interesting choice. I, I think the other interesting choice is, right, to make the uh, more sexual, more violent character uh, not be interested in motherhood, right? Um, Charlie is only interested in protecting Sam's daughter, who she does not acknowledge as her own. Um, until that child is in danger, right? And it seems to be making this this sort of mama bear inherent protect the baby argument, which... And this is, again, this is we get to the... This is why I I had a hard time articulating my feelings in review, because all this good shit isn't loaded in the first, what, third of this movie, 
And then as we get to the 11th hour, it just piles on more and more kind of tropey contrivances that are like, okay, well, uh, here's an idea that'll get us to the end of the movie. Right. And it, uh, I don't know, it falls flat for me. Um, and I want to like it because I like, as Dustin mentioned, uh, uh, or maybe as you mentioned, Arthur, when Charlie first comes out around Sam's daughter, it's when they're at the ice rink. Um, and the way that she speaks to uh, Caitlin is clearly very different than the way Sam does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is those words that uh, Caitlin uses to get Charlie up off the ground when she is near death. So again, it is always the child in the third act of this film that is motivating Charlie uh, to keep going, to keep pushing. And uh, I don't know, man. I mean, it, it seems that Hollywood really cannot go with the, the nuance, can't go with the multiple multiple layers. It can't have a mom who enjoys sex who also happens to be a soldier, right? And yeah. I've met those women. I mean, there, there, there are many people who are in the armed services who are women who have children who also like to have sex. And those things are not exclusive in any sense. Yeah, I think our, our traditional narratives have a real hard time with that. Yeah. Well, we've had a culture, I think, especially American culture, where sex is primarily a male thing, right? Men need sex. Men want sex. And that's what women are there for, right? I mean, to, to, especially, I think, coming out of a biblical background. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that in, in the church, a lot of times, that's the, the kind of idea is men need sex and women need to fulfill that need. Do your duty. And it's not ever the other way around, right? And Oh, but boy, howdy is it sometimes in real life. I've seen married with children. Yeah. <laughs> oh, bud. That's um, not real life. <laughs> Look, sometimes guys don't want to fuck. Yeah, sometimes. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Uh, and again, Arthur's right. I mean, this this is how we get here, right? Is is pushing people these narratives that are not, you know, have fundamentally no truth to them in the way we interact with each other, right? And you can't. People are people. Uh, gender is kind of uh, only as relevant as an individual wants it to be for them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then you know, and then the way society forces things on us is another conversation entirely. But. The way society forces this uh, narrative on this film, uh, and again, as Arthur said, this is a bad movie for our tour theory, so we're not going to say it's anybody's fault, but it's definitely where the film goes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Can we talk about the 90s for a second? Yeah, I sure. Go... sure. So, Are we going to talk about which, which part of the 90s? Not? I, I want to talk about There's these really sort of... There's like three good years in the 90s. It's 93, the... 94, 99, so... Yeah. Oh, all right, well... Fair enough. Um, I'm talking about the sort of conspiracy theory thing that's going on. I had a feeling that's where we were going. And and how the 90s were so into that. Oh, they loved it. And I just just, it's worth pointing out. So within the film, uh, there is a conspiracy that's going on because of a lack of funding for uh, CIA and other sort of post-Cold War kind of operations because there's no longer Cold War and military budgets are no longer necessary because, you know, you don't have to have the same sort of stockpiles in place for, you know, fighting a country that can't even bake bread. I mean, that's a real problem. And uh, as such, uh, the money's going to health care and, you know, terrible things like that. And what happens is this sort of false flag operation. And, I mean, this plays into all that sort of 9-11 truth or conspiracy theory, maniac, cuckoo banana pants land, which I don't want to go to. Yeah, but if you are stuck in the corkboard land... Uh, boy, howdy, we got something for you to pin to the board but, <laughs> with yarn. But the 90s overall were just hyper, hyper paranoid. There about, was a lot of movies uh, about false flag operations About false in the 90s. flag operations, government corruption, hiding in secrets. I mean, the X-Files are very, very popular at this time. There's a whole storylines in science fiction. I was going to say, I mean, you, you, I mean, two of your biggest authors at the time, you got Tom Clancy and uh, John Grisham over here, and that's their bread and butter, these kind of political intrigue, conspiracy-type stories. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, we're still, what, 20 years out from Watergate. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we're still reeling with that. Then we've got Democrats in charge of the government in the 1990s. So now uh, conservatives, conservatives yeah. who have not had such an enjoyable time feasting on all this delicious conspiracy stuff. And that, the rise uh, of the Internet only fosters this. You well, and talk radio and... with your Rush Limbaugh's and then, you know, the, just the changing of political norms with Newt Gingrich in the House. I mean, we, we eat a history lesson of the 90s. But you, Dustin's right. I think we're super into it in the 90s in, in a way that kind of paves the ground for where we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think part of that is, you know, you've got these different voices in conservatism in the 90s that are uh, real horny for a conspiracy theory in a way that only the left had been leading up to that point, right? right so I yeah. think the, the 70s, that, that post, being a, a full generation out from Watergate gave us enough and our ability to look back on it and the changing political landscape of the post Cold War era, I think, I think it was a real just like lightning in a bottle moment, right? Right. And this, I think, this movie is more of a lefty sort of conspiracy theory. It is because people want government funding for additional military budgets. Yeah, right? it, assu- it assumes the military industrial complex is evil. So yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I think it does that. But you're right; it does sort of come from both directions. And there's something interesting about uh, American culture over long periods of peace is that that's when uh, American culture becomes uh, pretty self-reflective, um, self-reflexive in, in, in certain ways. And yeah. so that moment itself, you know, 25 years away from the Vietnam War, and there hadn't been any major conflicts outside of the Gulf War, which lasted for, what, two weeks? It, and well, you know, unless you want to talk about Central Europe, but nobody wants to. Yeah, ever. yeah, yeah Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, yeah, Sarajevo, all that. Yeah, we don't want to talk about how we were there. Yeah, and, but but again, those were barely sort of blips in the public consciousness yeah. in, those, in those moments. And well, and it was it was a, we had a full genocide and swing, and it, you're right, it was a blip. Yeah, I mean, which is kind of where we've gotten when shit hits the fan in the I would say the last thirty years. But those were also interventionist wars as well. Those were sort of peacekeeping missions. Those yeah. were wars in which we did not have necessarily a vested interests of ourselves. It was a, a exemplary of a different kind of foreign policy. It wasn't where Pearl Harbor had happened and we'd been attacked, and now we've gotten ourselves into a war. Yeah, it was a d- decision to say we've got to pick a side and pick a side and and try to settle the situation um, in those cases. And so there is a a different kind of, I don't know, uh, zeitgeist at work in that moment. For sure. I just find it to be really, really interesting. And I I wonder how long after 9-11, because what 9-11 does is it creates an external enemy. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. And uh, so that's what uh, a lot of cinema sort of begins to tackle. And even now, we're close to 20 years away from that. You're going to say, yeah, it's been 18 years. So are we going to see another cycle where we come back into this, what are we guilty of? What are we up to? What are we suspicious of? I mean, if we ever stop being at war, maybe. Maybe. But neither, you know, neither of the conflicts that were precipitated by that event or that our foreign policy allowed to be precipitated by that event, however you want to slice that. They haven't that. been wrapped up yet. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, we're, we, we've saved the war Iraq ended, but I mean, did it? Did it? Did it just turn into another conflict? Mission you know, kind of how war, how what always happens with wars is one conflict usually starts another one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I mean, it's different, right? I think we're starting to enter that self-reflexive period a little well, bit, uh, wouldn't you say, Arthur? Well, not just that, but I mean, the, the kind of, I mean, just the political climate at home, you know, I mean, we're not really fighting many different battles than we fought in the late nineties, but they're a lot louder because of social media and because of the internet and because so many more people now have a voice that it, it it creates this sort of echo chamber of these thoughts here at home, which I think is going to shape the direction our art and media take and how the 
the, those creators and, and, you know, a, the indie studios kind of react to that. And the, uh, the big Disney, uh, ignores it. I, I think that's kind of where we go from here. Well, and it gets to the point where the only social issues that a big studio is going to even broach is, well, we cast, you know, black people in this movie, so we must be doing something right, right? Do you like us? Are we hip? Are we with it? Did we solve all of society's problems? It's like, well, sometimes, I mean, you let Ryan Coogler make a movie that was explicitly about colonialism, but, you know, then you just... I don't know, kind of make Aladdin maybe have something to say. And, and that's you made Bohemian Rhapsody. There we have And then it. give the Oscar to Green Book. So. Yeah, so again, th- this is a a system, a industry that holds itself up on pretending it's totally with it and is often way behind. And I think Arthur's right. I think uh, the change in uh, our discourse that social media has caused is... Like, the 90s were a trial run for the 20-teens, right? I mean, we the 20-teens are the 90s with Twitter, which has been... Uh, hard, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to you know, say the least. And I think the big thing right now that I think both could agree on is, you know, looking at something like uh, uh, "Sorry to Bother You" from last year, and even "Child's Play" from this year is this idea of kind of the the capitalist machine and the consumption of human entities as you know nothing more than a workforce to, to do the job and not get paid a living wage. And I, I think that's where some of that stuff will maybe find itself slipping in. Yeah. yeah, I think the fact that there's not been an endpoint to these wars has created a cultural self-curdling that has uh, allowed that uh, that discourse that you're talking about, Dustin. I think it's starting to happen already, even mm-hmm. though uh, those conflicts haven't ended. And uh, I don't think in, until those, uh, if those context, conflicts ever settle down, then maybe we'll get there. But I think, yeah, Arthur mentioned Small movies. It's smaller movies that are questioning what is going on right now. And bigger movies are maybe will pay lip service to it. Um, you know, you get your last Jedi's with throwing around words like resistance and uh, everybody uh, feels like the movie is on their side. And no, Disney's on the side of making yeah. $2 billion. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, yeah. yeah, exactly. And again, so you've got, you've got your Ryan Coogler's and your Ryan Johnson's trying to make films in the system that, you know, wink at a social issue. Um, sometimes go a little bit further than that. But in either case, they are still stuck in a studio system that is only going to allow you to say so much because they have a vested interest in the narrative not changing that much. Yeah, very so. good, very good. Well, I, I was just curious because I thought it, that, you know, again, I didn't want to get into the sort of truther, you know, false flag thing because yeah, I think sure. that's balderdash. But I do think it does show just a little bit of that flavor that we're seeing there in the 1990s. Are there any other major themes or topics that we want to make sure that we address with uh, the long kiss good night? Um, I think the one thing that uh, we could put a pin on um, with gender and Shane Black is if this movie is selling out for Shane Black and he has to go away for 10 years, um, is becoming a mother selling out for Charlie? Um, what is, you know, what does that look like? Cause I think you can make the case that maybe it is, um, that the potentially, uh, um, radical feminist underpinnings that this film might have get shot out, uh, from underneath it when it ends with a happy, uh, happy family with a picket fence on a ranch that seems to be nowhere. It's, it's toyed with at some point in the narrative when I can't remember who's talking to her. It's one of the bads, I think, you know, or it may even be Mitch, uh, but how that identity that she had created as Sam was what she had really wanted the whole time. And so I think there's a lot of these kind of, you get into some maybe psychoanalysis stuff, but the kind of subconscious yearning of, of the person, what they really want, you know, and, and running from that on, on a surface level, you know, Sam's running from this past of, 
murder and mayhem and has a chance at a new start and she may subconsciously you know connect that at some level and i think vice versa charlie's the other way you know she's scared to be tied down because this is the life she's known for 20 30 years or you know whatever it is because she's recruited what in the 70s so she's a kid i mean it's a yeah red she gets sparrow type it thing. straight up says she gets she gets got recruited as a teen yeah and, and so uh it's a, a fear of normalcy i think on charlie's end so i think there's a lot of those kind of subconscious fears being being dealt with on both ends so i i, I don't know that i would read it so much as selling out because i think the seeds are planted there for it to be really either way that that character could go yeah i read it as more of the integration especially with the uh the phone call that she's having you know as she's driving with the top down and her really really sort of awesome thelma and louise car again mm-hmm. um, there at the end of the with film. her sweet headscarf yeah yep. with, yeah and, and it's so she's she's sort of talking to the president about what she's doing and she's not going to come back in and she's not going to work but maybe i mean it seems like she would console a little bit and she's still able to throw the knife very well and it, it seems to me that she is a person who is uh definitely very very competent in the efficient distribution of violence and also loves her daughter and she can do both those things and that you don't have to do one or the other to sort of be feminist or uh, whatever unlike john wick she's uh able to find that peace and balance in her life and i think that's the kind of middle ground here yeah the the early screenplay as we've talked about and even parts of the movie that we ended up getting seem to allude to you know this idea that only the only time women get to embrace violence is when violence has been visited upon them by trauma uh, and this unlocks some sort of secret death machine that was always there. Um, and damn, does this movie like play with that? But yeah, I, I think you guys are right. I think the way that it's reconciled that there is a com- uh, comfortability with violence and a comfortability with motherhood that, uh, yeah, I think you're right, are integrated together in, in to one person. Uh, Sam and Charlie kind of fuse personas by the end of the movie in a way that I don't know, doesn't ring hollow for me, but I just, I wanted to, I don't, I don't think it would be an unreasonable accusation to level against the yeah. film that Charlie uh, sells out to uh, be a conventional, uh, you know, mother or whatever. But also, I, I don't know, she takes her spy money and her passports and says, I don't work for the government anymore, go fuck yourself. So, I don't know, I think that's pretty cool. And that's the real baller move. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the, the real baller move is do what you want. Liquidate all your assets, yeah. go live on a farm in the middle of nowhere. Also, Secret Death Machine is the name of my new black metal band. I, nice. I, I like that a lot. There you have it. We've uh, got Doomsday Plans and a black metal band. Arthur, do you got something else? I just wanted to wrap it up. I had a little PSA. Uh, for those of you who have never driven in deer country, don't break for deer. You just hit them full on because you're going to get a real deer through the windshield moment. you got to go through. To visit uh, our long, long ago episode over Planet Terror. Speaking of, uh, the first episode of the show where the uh, trope of the uh, the Fighting Fuck Toy came up, actually, I, I'm pretty sure we talked about I it on that episode. I think you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but to go on, yeah. take a lesson from that film, don't blink, don't break, don't swerve, kill that deer. It's uh, unfortunate. But... If it's an elk, do break and do swerve. Well, but... yeah, elk's a big air animal. Yeah. Uh, also learn the difference between a deer and an elk. Yes. And this has been your public service announcement. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, thank you very much, dear co-hosts. Let's run a verdict. Shelf or trash for the long kiss. Good night. What do you say, Arthur? Uh, trash. I I have no hesitancy to put it there. I, I I mean, it had its few moments, but I mean, I paid to paid to watch this, and I was a little upset about it. And so I I'm going to put it in the trash for me. Did you have to buy it? Buy it? Because no. I had to, I had to buy it. I rented it. on Amazon Voodoo. did not have a rent. Yeah, I saw that. I yeah. saw that. And I, I'm so sorry, I, buddy. I own the movie now. I'm so sorry. I am well, it's on your digital. More show. on that later. I uh, yeah, I uh, I had to rent it, and uh, if it was on TV Sunday afternoon, it's a perfect Sunday afternoon movie. But I I can't in good justice say it's on a shelfable uh, list. 
What do you say, Dalton? Oh, I'm torn. I, I really am because I, I I like Gina Davis's performance so much here. And again, I think you said this, Arthur, uh, and I agree with you. I think it's my favorite performance of the marathon. I think it's the most nuanced. I think it's the most lived in. It's the performance that I think Davis most disappears into because she plays not only two but three characters, uh, all that share traits and uh, a Venn diagram of one character, basically. And uh, it's such a good performance. And um, I see why Sam Jackson likes this movie. I see why it's one of his favorite performances that he's ever done, because he's alive in this film in a way that, uh, I mean, over the last 10 years, we only get him maybe once every other year. So I'm torn, because these are two of my favorite actors, and they're great in it. But yeah, the movie itself is not great. So, uh yeah, you stream this one. I don't think you need to put it on the shelf. I think it's super important uh, in terms of where it exists in 90s cinema in terms of talking about female action heroines, which is uh, uh, something that the 90s was finally trying to embrace, as Arthur mentioned, uh, in some of that research that's been done about that, that decade. It's, it's, an, it's a valuable movie. This is a very soft trashing for me. Very good, very good. Well, if you're a person who's on a podcast who gets movies assigned to them, and uh, sometimes tries to avoid piracy when feasible, you might pay $10 to buy this movie. But you're a schmuck if you're that guy. And otherwise, you should put the movie in the trash. Yeah, you feel like a schmuck, huh? I do feel like a schmuck. Um, Could have rented it on Voodoo. Because I'm going to have it forever, and I'm never going to see it again. I was less mad when I bought uh, a digital copy, copy of Terminator 2 a couple of weeks ago because I wanted to watch and it wasn't streaming anywhere. And is now streaming again. So, yeah. But yeah, but the but movie's on that level it. anyway. Exactly. And you're going to have it if it goes off stream. Bingo. That's the test, right? Are you ever going to really want to watch... Uh, no. Yeah. No, that's too bad. But you're going to want to watch Terminator 2. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I want to watch Terminator 2 right now. I'm, I'm saying. Well, sorry, Gina Davis. Uh, we love you. You look great. Though. I mean, overall. She was great, yeah. What did we do? Uh, two out of four, we shelf? I did. I think same with you. You same. didn't shelf. I shelved the fly. I did you, did you shelf Thelma Louise? I, I shelved Thelma I definitely Louise. did. Yeah. I think oh, I, I did three out of four. I think I shelved did, League of Their Own. Just did to, you? I think I did because I said, I think it was the one that I said we're shelving. I shelved it because there's not a whole lot like it. Mm. Or maybe I said that about them. No, you're Louise. right. I That was about yeah, Thelma Louise I said that. Shelved. I think it was two or four. So one out of every two Gina Davis movies is worth shelving. Yeah. And even the ones that are not worth shelving, she's great in. Yeah, she's She's gold. Go watch old school Gina Davis. You're going to fall in love with her. Yeah. Uh, she's versatile. Watch Beetlejuice. Watch yeah. Earth Girls Are Easy. Have a good time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope you, we, we hope you enjoyed this uh, I Dream of Gina Marathon. It was a ton of fun to program. Um, and honestly, again, we, all they, were, they were all fun to watch. Uh, if you have thoughts about this marathon or anything we're doing, uh, send us an email. It's uh, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at good underscore trash. Go to the website, goodtrashmedia.com. It's got this show. It's got all the shows that we've ever made. It's got written articles. That's it. Uh, you can find us individually on Twitter if you want. I don't know why you would want to do that. It's a bad place to be. Um, but we try to keep the, uh, the the show feed fun. You know, mm -hmm. We put out movie articles. We uh, put out uh, uh, retweets from all the other members of our Good Trash Media family, funny things that they've said. So, yeah, you know, go find us on the Internet if you uh, you liked this episode. Uh, we're you doing more of this, or are you going to keep going? I've got my briefcase full of cash and my passports, and I am about to get in But my... I struck a deal under the table with <sighs> Dustin to keep him around one more week. Oh, you did? That's did good, you? because I'm a little cash poor at the moment. I and can't I'm going to be vindicated finally after all these years, because next week, after it came up on Twitter, and it was outed that we had never done this movie, we are going to take on some really fine people. In Joe Dante's Small Soldiers. 
Oh, is that what we're doing next week? Yes. Oh, man. I'm excited about this. Fun times. It's a good They're good movie. people. It's yeah. A, th- I'm excited about this. That, yeah, that film's a... Is, is it, did it just cross like a 20th anniversary or something? Yeah, I, I think saw... that's what Dante said. Is okay. So we're doing a weird kind of mini Christmas marathon at this point. Yeah. yeah. I've seen so. a lot of people mention that movie uh, recently. recently. Yeah. I think it's. Uh, I think it'll be fun. I'm I excited. Tommy Lee Jones and Frank Langella. Isn't uh, um, Phil Hartman's Phil last Hartman. movie? Phil yeah. Hartman's last movie. Uh, Dennis Leary's in it. This movie's yeah. got uh, Jay Moore's in it. It's like a, uh, a, yeah, David Cross. It's, it's a very uh, '90s cast. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm very excited uh, for that one. I haven't seen this since I was we're, a child. We're going to talk about some more uh, military stuff, uh, oh, weaponization of toys. So uh, uh, we're going to talk about selling children being a murderer Dom. so much. Mm-hmm. We get to talk about drones. I'm sure. Oh my so. god, we do get to talk about drones. So, yeah. Oh, uh, we get to talk about GI Joe. Well, it sounds like if they keep watching, we'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid.